Hello, and welcome to Tara Talks 2. I am Tara Suber. If this is your first time listening, I would like to advise you to go back to the very first episode, The Why. And if you don't want to listen to all of them, at least listen to The Why and then the episode prior to this entitled Silent Cries. That will give you a fuller picture of the story that I'm going to journey through on today. On last episode, I spoke about the birth of my son and briefly about the relationship with his father. And I remember being in that relationship because I felt like the right thing to do was to have both parents involved in the raising of a child. Growing up in the household with my two parents, I knew how important the relationship or more so important how having both parents in the household was to the detriment of the child. So I took on that mentality when I remained in the relationship with my son's father. The relationship was mainly sexual. He seemed in the beginning to be a very good person and he seemed to be interested in the rearing of our child. And so I would say that I was satisfied in the relationship, um, feeling like we were a family and taking care of our child and that we were in sync. But I must be transparent and, and admit that all of this was way above my, my head. I was just turning 16 when I gave birth to my son. And not knowing my head from a hole in the ground half the time. Just trying to maneuver my way through life and raising him. I got to give a shout out to my parents because mom and dad made sure of was that I was actively involved in the raising of my son. He was my responsibility. They were simply there as a support system. They loved him and they cared for him. But at this point, Tara, you have to make decisions for you and your son and you're going to take care of him. It wasn't like I could just drop him off and then be gone. They did allow me to continue to be a teenager to some degree. I went to school. I was still allowed to be involved in band and, and, um, the dance team and chorus and drama and I was actively involved in school I went back to school when I was still pregnant um, I remember Mrs. Fernandez from uh, Long Point Road in the Snowden community Ms. Fernandez I'll never forget her I think she was one of the counselors I'm not sure if she taught at, at the school but there was a group of teenage moms that came back to school pregnant. Now, I got to admit, we were all black. We were all African-Americans. Were there uh, Caucasians, 
that were pregnant. Yes. Some of them that I knew of, but hardly any of them came back to school. They, I didn't see them. Um, I heard rumors of pregnancies, but they were not seen. But in the black community, I we had to go to school. There wasn't a, no, just because you're pregnant, your brain's still working. So we went back to school. It was, it was the shame of it all, you know, being a young teen, 14, 15, 16. These are 14, 15, 16 year olds pregnant, carrying babies in high school when our lives were just supposed to be beginning. We were supposed to be thriving in our teenage years and just enjoying life, not worrying about being a mom. And so Miss Fernandez noticed that there was a rising in the numbers of African-American girls that were pregnant at the school. And so she began a, it wasn't a club, it was like an, a support group for the teen moms. And she supported us and did different things, gave us pamphlets, brought people in to talk to us about the health and wellness of ourselves and the babies and our mental stability and the importance of balance. Ms. Fernandez passed away a few years ago. And I'm telling you, she at the time had no idea, but I believe that she was spirit led to do such a tremendous act of kindness to help us teen moms accept what has become and grow and nurture ourselves and the babies that were in our bellies and prepare us for whether it was motherhood, whether we were going to be giving up to children for adoption or whatever it was. She supported us in that way. And I apologize. I'm getting very emotional, but she, she was really my hero. She really was because she helped. The fact that we had to go back to public school because my parents weren't going to send me to Florence Crittenden because I believe at the time we had to be, I don't, I can't remember if it was a residential home or we had to be transported, but no, I stayed in my parents' home and I was going to public school. But Ms. Fernandez, she made it, she made the transition so much better. We were already um, being criticized and ostracized and separated from our normal friend groups. Because, of course, moms and dads didn't want pregnant teenagers around their daughters because they figured we were a bad influence. So it's just a moment for Mrs. Fernandez. She was a hero. But let's fast forward to my life as a teen mom two years into this relationship that was very unhealthy. There were other women that were pregnant. There were STDs that I contracted. 
And then there was the day I decided enough was enough. And I went over to his house and I said to him, I said, listen, this is it. I'm, I don't want to do this anymore. And immediately he deflected. It's because you effing that other nigga. That's what he said. And I was like, dude, it's not even like that. I'm not with nobody. And he was angry. I think it was because I was making the decision. Now, mind you, all throughout the relationship, I was not the decision maker. I Decisions were made and I followed suit. Let's just say what it is. Decisions were made and I followed suit. We're going to do this. Okay. And I did it. This is how it's going to be. All right. And I did that. But for the first time, I somehow conjured up the courage to say, no more. This is it. This is it. And I stuck with it and I stood my ground. And in that moment in his room, the next thing I remember is him yelling and screaming. And I remember a ringing in my head because I was shoved from one side of the room up into the closet. They were wooden accordion doors. And so the rattling of the closet, I didn't know if it was the, the noise from the rattling of the closet or he had shoved me so hard into the closet that my ears were ringing. But in all of that turmoil, all I can think of is I need to get out of here. The door to leave the bedroom was to my left. And I remember kind of like crying, just crying. In the moment, I was crying because I was shocked that he had done it because he had never laid his hands on me. He never hit me. He was very um, verbally ab abusive, but he never put his hand on me. You know, he, he was make threats. But he never put his hand on me until that moment. So I was in shock and I was shook. And so I, I don't know if I was crying because I was shocked or I was crying as in thinking, what next? How, how are you going to get out of this room? Because I never seen this physical side of him. So is it going to escalate or is he just he shocked as I am that he was that he put his hand on me. So I cried, I cried, I cried, I cried. And, and then I, um, he kind of shoved me so hard. He, I, he pushed me out of one of my shoes. I had on these flat ballerina type slippers, but they had hard, hard bottoms. Not like these ones they make now with the rubber bottoms. They had hard bottoms. And I remember that because I, I reached down in my tears and crying and I grabbed my shoe. And in that moment, I thought, hit his ass with the shoe and get out of this room. And so he thought I was reaching down to pick up the shoe to put it on. But I picked that shoe up and I flung it with every bit of strength I had. And I hit him with that shoe until he went back and he held his head. And in that moment, I ran, left the shoe, left him never to return to that house in that room again. When I um, left his home that day after being shoved and me throwing the shoe to get away. Okay, I go home and face my parents. Um, thank goodness they weren't home when I got there. <laughs> they 
or they were they, either they were not home or they were so distracted because I don't remember seeing any of them. I was able to get home. Nobody asked me about that shoe. So I got passed through the gates <laughs> without being questioned and um, got, got myself cleaned up and got myself together, threw the other shoe in the trash. And that was a wrap. I remember it being February now because I remember when I was telling my husband about the incident I said, babe, I can't remember what time of year it was, but it was, it wasn't winter, winter. It was either early, early spring after the cold or early fall. That's all I can remember telling him. But I said, I think it was earlier in the year because I remember where I was. I was coming from a performance at the school. The night law enforcement was called. That's the night I'm speaking of. In between the shove on the day of the broke the breakup and the incident, the night law enforcement was called, was less than a month. So the breakup was still fresh. I began to see um a guy. He, he we weren't really dating, dating. We were cool, just kinda he was cool. He was into the arts, he was into music, I was into the arts, I was into music. It was a performance, a talent show at school. I remember he was in the talent show. I was in the talent show. It was a beautiful night. We had a good time. I sung. And so it was It was just a fun night. I was getting, finding myself again, getting back into who Terrell was, the foundation which my parents had laid for me. I was just becoming me again, still raising my son, taking care of my son. But getting back involved with my friends, these, these people, I, you know, during that relationship, you know, he was very obsessive and very possessive. So, um, not recognizing the signs of an unhealthy relationship when you're six feet into it, you know, I was clearly isolated from family and friends, but I didn't realize it until I came out of the relationship and there was my world, my solid friends who were still out there waiting for me, who was rooting for me to um, be free from that relationship. And so when I was back into the arts at this talent show, we were having such a good time and I was just getting, you know, my rhythm back, you know, dedicating myself back to those things that mattered to me, my life no longer being dominated by him. And what he wanted, but it was all about me and my son and just getting back in the rhythm of things. Naturally regained my parents' trust back because it was still fresh. Yeah, they noticed I hadn't been around him and hadn't said anything, but you know, a lot of times when I was hanging out with him and meeting with him, I kept that away from my parents because it was a sore topic for us, you know. They knew I had been pregnant by him, so they knew we was probably having sex. And my parents didn't want to deal with that. They didn't want to deal with that. So you know, I kind of kept our relationship apart from my family. So the fact that I was no longer with him, he, they really didn't know. You know, I still had a strict um, curfew. My daddy was extremely um, strict when it came to certain things with me. And so in order to rebuild the trust with my father, I stuck with the timeline. My curfew was 11 o'clock. I had a son. Know what I'm saying? Um, I can't remember if I was a sophomore or junior in high school. Can't remember really. But listen, I had my license. I think my, my daddy said, you'd have to be in the house by 11 o'clock. That's the curfew. Those are the rules. And so I'm living in my parents' home. So I abided by the rules because here I am. I'm trying to rebuild the trust. 
Hurricane Hugo had came earlier um, that year. So our, our home was destroyed in the storm. So at this time we were living um, with my grandfather because we had no place to go. Our home was completely destroyed. And while it was being rebuilt, we stayed there. And I remember, if I sound like I'm all over the place, guys, it's because my memory um, of this night, uh, because of the trauma, is very, it, it was um, distorted quite a bit. So I'm a little all over the place when I remember certain things. So please forgive me. The talent show went amazing. I left with high hopes. I left on the top of the world. Great performances all around. Being on the on the planning committee of the show, it was good. It was successful. I'm headed home, my normal route. And these lights, I remember seeing flashing lights, flashing lights. And um, so I stopped, you know, in the neighborhood. I'm in my hood. If somebody flashed a light, they know it's me. They're trying to get my attention. So I stopped. Um, it was him. And um, he had asked me to do him a favor. And so I did. And it's like, I need you to, can I just drop this car off and you take me to such and such's house, which is right down the street from my house. So my, you know, where I moved at my grandfather's house. I didn't mind doing it. All right, cool. Let's, you know, let's go. Hurry up. Cause I got a curfew. You know, he had not communicated with me. Um, I think he was afraid that my brothers and them was going to come after him or my cousins was going to come after him. So in my mind, I'm thinking the reason why he has been peaceful and quiet with him was because he felt like if I had told my family what he had done, that they would come for him. And so he had not said anything to me negative. Any conversations that we had was positive and everything that we had um, discussed was about our son. It wasn't about us getting back together because that was done and he knew it. So when he said, just, I just want to drop my parents' car off and I don't want to walk up back up the street. Could you just give me a quick ride? I'm like, no, no problem. Hurry up. And so followed him back there. He dropped the car off and he, and he got, um, he was standing outside my door, my car. And right here is where things get kind of distorted for me. I must admit that the trauma of this night has caused a bit of distortion in my memory and how I recall things. I remember he was in the car. I remember him driving my car, which was a no-no. I don't remember how he got in the driver's seat. I remember an argument pursuing I remember him saying, I heard you effing this nigga. I remember it being very, the atmosphere just, it was, it was full of turmoil. I remember him taking me somewhere where it, it was not discussed. That was not the place he asked me. Why he was even driving my car, I don't even remember. But I remember him parking on the dead end street. And I remember the fear that I had because immediately I re I'm recalling the moment where he pushed me and I was in complete shock. And I was thinking, God, what's going to happen? Why are we back here? And I remember him saying, you're out there giving it to everybody else. You're going to give me some. I, I don't remember his words exactly. 
And I remember me telling him, no. I remember saying, no. And I remember fighting. And I remember him pulling my pantyhose and my panties down. And I remember the act because I recall just being numb and non-responsive because at this point, I'm afraid. I said, no, I said, no. But he continued and he he continued and he continued. He continued. He would not stop. I recall. And um, the next thing I remember, I don't know if he ejaculated inside me, if he was, did it outside. I don't remember any of that because I just kind of zoned out. He was so much bigger than me and so much stronger than me. Um, I remember him saying, now drive me back home. I remember me crying the whole way. I remember a couple of shut ups. Shut up. Just be quiet. Acting like I hurt you or something. Acting like we ain't never did this before. I recall those words. And so I quietly kind of sucked it up and I dropped him off and I remember the only thing that was in the forefront of my mind as I was driving away I remember him saying I know you're gonna call the police but I'm gonna be gone before they get here I remember him saying that but I wasn't thinking about the police I was thinking about my 11 o'clock curfew that I had missed and I know my daddy was mad at me because the last time I missed 11 o'clock curfew I got my butt whipped I was a grown teenager, teenager, and I was getting my butt whipped for missing my curfew. And I thought, man, I was doing so good. Now I'm about to get my butt whipped after everything he just did to me. And so out of fear of getting my butt whipped, now listen how twisted this was. Not even thinking about what he just did. I was trying to build my relationship back with my parents. I was literally going to suck that up as an incident and bury it somewhere deep. But I was afraid to go home because I'd missed my curfew and things had been going so good. So on my way home, I had to pass my grandmother's house. So I stopped at my grandmother's house. She went, she looked and she went to go get the phone and she sat down in her chair and I couldn't even make it to the phone. I just got on my knees and put my head on my grandmother's lap and I just cried. And I just cried. And in that moment, everything that he had just done to me came back. And I just cried. I was no longer thinking about the curfew. I was thinking about the hurt that he just took something from me that I had denied him and that I had discontinued. And I was so angry that he would do that to me because he couldn't accept the fact that I stood up for myself for once and denied him another hand on me that day. It felt like a payback. You told me, no, I'm going to take what I want anyway, because you belonged to me during those two years. I felt so violated. In that moment, my granny just rubbed my back. She rubbed my back and then she called the police. She rubbed my back and then she just called the police. And I think the next call she made was to my parents. And I just sat there. I remember my mom coming 
to get me. I remember mommy coming to get me. And we went to the police department on Rivers Avenue near Cosgrove. I remember it used to be a Krispy Kreme donut over there. It was a police dispatch station. It was a county because we lived in the county. We had to go to county. I remember being there and then I remember somehow ending up at MUSC for a rape kit to be done. And um, it was uh, quite a night. I recalled uh, stories of my dad being informed of what had happened and that he just kind of snapped and he took his shotgun and he walked down the main street in our neighborhood and he was going to blow him away but once again my uncle and my aunt intervened and stopped my dad from making a critical era that would have changed my family forever my ex was arrested and put in jail. The charges were kidnapping and rape, sexual assault. I um, remember being told by the nurse while I was at MUSC, and MUSC is the Medical University of South Carolina. I remember being told um, that there was sufficient evidence of sexual assault. He obviously did not ejaculate. However, there was enough physical evidence on my legs and my inner thighs and of a forceful entry and um, some bruising on my knees and from being thumped and bumped during the encounter, which honest to God, don't remember much of. And um, I recall probably by the next morning, everybody in the neighborhood and knew about it. And um, I don't remember going back to school the next day but it was a few days later there's this girl me and her had been to school together for years and uh, she um <laughs> her and I used to be friends when we were in middle school and then something occurred and it was a disagreement between us and so I was no longer part of that friend group uh, so when I returned back to school I this particular, my this old friend group that I used to hang with, they would be stationed a certain place at the high school. And I remember having to walk by them to get to where I needed to go. And these words have resonated and rung in my ears for years. She said, because she was a bully. She was a bully. <laughs> she said, um, Y'all heard? I don't understand how she can say, how your baby daddy rape you? That don't make no sense. She said it very loud. And they all started laughing. And I recall never speaking of this incident. Again, I recall never bringing it up for the rest of that year. Finished the school year. I had a new friend group by then. They didn't ask any questions. They were just loving and welcoming to me but I remember me beginning at that time to compartmentalize things and bury them because of the shame that I would have I felt that I had allowed it I felt that if I had done this different or if I had done that different or if I had done this different that I wouldn't have been 
in that place at that time. So I blamed myself for many years for what had happened to me. And there are some things that I can take full accountability for today, you know, as an adult going through therapy for different, for, for past compartmentalized trauma, there are things that I take complete accountability for. But that is not one of them. I um, recall it was um, while he was in jail, he had friends on the outside. That would literally terrorize me. They would terrorize me. One friend in particular would terrorize me. He would call and say, yo, he wants you. He's going to call you and you, you better answer the phone. And like you're incarcerated. What do you mean? You, you, know, you don't have any control over me. And he said, all I'm going to tell you is that you need to answer the phone when he calls and accept the charges. And I'm thinking, no, I'm not. And then he said, he got those pictures. And if you don't want your parents to see those pictures, you better accept the call. Yo. So here I am again. Like, you gotta be kidding me. This not over. I recall the day that he called. And it, I didn't have to accept the charges. So he must have had a calling card or something. Because he called direct to the, the, the landline. And his instructions were, I heard you look. These were his words. I heard you look cute today. Such and such told me you was wearing a little red dress. So I see you getting over everything pretty fast. <laughs> Here's what I'm going to need you to do. A court date coming up. I'm not worried about the sexual assault charge. Tara, I ain't worried about no rape. I don't know why you tripping about that. But it's this kidnapping charge. They going to get me on this charge. I'm going to need you to show up at this court. And I'm going to need you to tell them. I'm going to have my lawyer ask you. Do you feel. That the defendant. Is a threat to you. And when they ask you that. I'm going to need you to say that I'm not. And I'm going to need you to say that. Or I'm going to mail these pictures. That you took from me. To your parents house. And they'll see what kind of whore you really was. I was so afraid. I was so afraid. I gave in. I gave in. After everything that had happened, my family was beginning to heal my relationship with my parents. I couldn't drop this ball on them like that, and I didn't want them to see those pictures. I didn't want them to see. I was so ashamed. I did it. I did just what he said. I did just what he said. With one condition that he gave me back the 10 photographs. It was 10. I believe it was 10. After they released him, I met him somewhere. How stupid can you be, Tara? And he gave me the pictures. And I remember having a lighter. And I burned the pictures. Right there. And I left and he left and we really did not communicate much more after that. I just wanted to move on with my life and gather what I felt was left. 
whatever pieces I can put back together to make myself whole. I wanted to at least try. I literally just went through my recollection of the evening in question. And I must admit that the night law enforcement was called. The whole event was flawed in my brain. This past summer, when I knew that I was going to begin taking this journey, I went online. And there's something called the Freedom of Information Act, F-O-I-A. And I used the Freedom of Information Act to obtain a copy of the report taken by the officer the night law enforcement was called. And I read it prior to the episode, which I probably shouldn't because there were things that I didn't remember. Um, I remember last in last week's episode, Silent Cries, I said that I received a phone call. And that's in my mind how I remembered it. I must have received a phone call from him for me to go by his house or to get something. But that wasn't how things happened. When I read the uh, report taken from the officer the night of the incident, it refreshed my memory. And I wish I hadn't read it before I started the episode because I wanted to display how trauma had affected my memory as opposed to what happened that night. Now the meat and bones of the offense, the rape, and the kidnapping is solid. But the events leading up to and after were refreshed by me reading the report. Charleston County Sheriff's Office Freedom of Information Act, February 24th, 1990. Report taken at 3.41 a.m. R.O., who I'm assuming is the recording officer, was dispatched to MUSC, the Medical University of South Carolina, in reference to a criminal sexual conduct upon arrival, the R.O. met with the above-named victim. Victim stated that she was driving home when the above-named suspect, her ex-boyfriend, started flashing the headlights of a vehicle in which he was driving at her to stop. Victim stated that she did not she did stop to see what the suspect wanted. Suspect asked victim if she would follow him home to return his grandparents' vehicle and then drive him another place. Victim agreed to follow the suspect to his residence. After suspect and victim got to the suspect's residence, the suspect parked the vehicle, then got into the victim's vehicle. The suspect then started an argument with the victim about who she was dating at the time. The suspect forced the victim into the passenger side of the vehicle while he got into the driver's seat. The suspect drove the victim to the end of, I'm not going to name the street, where he continued the argument with the victim. The victim stated that the suspect was very angry at her and said that she was having sex with everybody else and that she was going to have sex with him. The suspect then moved from the driver's seat to the passenger seat on top of the victim. The suspect tried to unbutton the victim's skirt. 
but he couldn't. So he pulled up the skirt and pulled down the pantyhose and the panties of the victim, then sexually assaulted her by having intercourse. The victim further stated that after the suspect had sexually assaulted her, he made her drive him back to his residence where he got out. The victim drove from the suspect's residence to, I won't name that address, where she called the police. The victim was transported to Medical University of South Carolina by her mother and CCPD was informed. The victim stated that her her and the suspect had been dating for about two years, but they had ended the relationship about two to three weeks ago. The RO, which I'm assuming is their recording or reporting officer, advised Lieutenant Frazier and Sergeant Garrison. Detective Schuster responded to MUSC, the Medical University of South Carolina, and took over the investigation. No other action taken by RO at this time. This has been quite a journey. Silent cries are not heard because they're usually within the battlefield of your mind. Trauma, shame, confusion, Turmoil. These thoughts in your mind create such a traumatic response. And depending on the individual, which I can only speak for myself, because of my current situation and because of the position I was in, I suppress and compartmentalize. Because it seems easier at the time to shut down, to not talk about it, to suppress these thoughts and move on with your life. Because who wants to live along your life being the victim? I didn't want to live my life being the victim. This followed me for so many years. There was a dark cloud in my life. People were very judgmental of me. Most of the community and most the people that I thought were my support did not believe me. And I don't know, I couldn't blame them because they didn't know all the details of what happened and how I was blackmailed with photographs of me to release him from prison. So they ultimately took his side. And of course, he did not tell them what he had done to get out of jail. So at the end of the day, I looked the fool. I played the fool. And so his life moved on seamlessly to my eyes. Whereas I was looked upon as you went through all of that because you was mad because he broke up with you. I mean, there was all kinds of rumors going around, but the most hurtful, the place where I experienced the most hurt and disappointment and shame was the place that I thought was my place of safety. And that was in the church. Shame on you. 
shame on you. But for the most part, the ones that I looked up to in ministry and in the church that I was a part of at the time, all but a few completely isolated me, told their children they don't want them around me. Nobody cared about what really happened to me. They just dwelled on the outward appearance of things. And so the cycle of shame continued. And so the cycle of hurt continued. And I was not going to walk around the victim. So I compressed it and suppressed. I think that's why I am who I am today. Anyone who can call me friend. Anyone who has had intimate encounters with me. I'm a very compassionate person because of my past. The Lord has truly endowed me with a spirit of compassion for others because you don't truly know everyone's story. So if I was to pull something from this extended episode on today, I would say, that it is very important for us to exercise compassion and to take on every individual in every situation with a judgment-free mindset. Because at the end of the day, you have no idea what that individual has truly had to pull themselves up by the boot scraps through. It may have taken that person every ounce of courage that they felt they had remaining in their natural body to even come to you for advice or for help. Moms, dads, guardians, spiritual leaders, confidants, so-called friends, and associates. It may have taken that person, that individual, every ounce of what they had left before they decide to tip off the cliff and just end it all. Before they decide to just permanently suppress that trauma, to come to you for help. And they may not say what's going on directly. So it's very important that we answer in a judgment-free tone and we exercise love and compassion because you may be that individual's only hope. My hope, my strength, and my will to fight back and not bury this situation on the night law enforcement was called was the look in my grandmother's eyes because she knew her granddaughter was hurt. She saw straight through it. She didn't judge me. She didn't question me. She just held me. She held me. She rubbed my back. 
she started praying. Compassion. Compassion. And every time I, I begin to feel like I can't make him or I begin to feel defeated, I remember the look in my grandmother's eyes. Give me hope. The compassion that she showed me that night gave me hope and gave me strength. So be somebody's hope. Be somebody's strength. Don't be so judgmental. Don't be so quick to pass judgment because of what it looks like on the surface. Because you really don't have any idea. Compassion is the word of the day. As you're going along your day and as you're going along your week. If you have been positioned in someone's life as a confident, as a guardian, as an associate, as a friend, as a listening ear, as a ministry leader, please, ma'am, please, sir, exercise compassion. Thank you so much for listening today. And until next time, God bless you and be encouraged. <laughs>